Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On a dull and overcast morning on Tuesday the 28th of June, 1887, a curious situation occurred at a lodging house in the East End of London. The body of a young woman was found on her bed in her lodging house. Her skin was quickly eroding from her face and her arms. What had happened to this woman, and why was her skin disintegrating? Furthermore, was the person responsible still nearby? perhaps peering out from under the bed, watching the chaos unfold. And subsequently, what would this murder have to do with the murders of five women in the East End by Jack the Ripper, which began just a year later? Today on Macabre London, we uncover the murder of Miriam Angel. East End of London in 1887 was a slum. It was inhabited by an incredibly diverse range of people who served its nearby factories and markets. The Industrial Revolution had provided millions of jobs, and many people escaping civil unrest and wars in various countries in Europe travelled to London to make a better life for themselves. In turn, these immigrants helped London and the UK as a whole steam ahead, pardon the pun, in making them a force to be reckoned with. Production of all sorts of materials that had once been laborious was now made easy with the help of machines. Steel, paper, iron, cement and many more essential items to the building trade meant that London could grow, and in turn, so could the rest of the UK. In sharing, and by sharing I mean selling, these patents and machines, the world in turn could also expand and grow. As a result of these major advancements, the population boomed, standards of living went up as there were better built houses, and even the literacy rate improved, as there were now actual schools for children to attend, and parents had money to pay for their children to go. 
There were many downsides to this, of course. Machines often went haywire and had no safety mechanisms in place, leading to thousands of life-changing injuries in the workplace. And of course, the poorer arms of society were exploited into working for free in workhouses. But there's no doubt about it, the Industrial Revolution shaped the face of London forever. The East End in particular saw a rise in population and multi-occupancy homes. It was quite common for newcomers to London to seek a room in a multi-occupancy household until they made enough money to branch out to better digs. Landlords took advantage of this situation, and those who had enough money to buy a home would often constrict their own family to a room or two so they could let out the rest of the house and make some money, or alternatively sublet rooms in their already rented accommodation. 16 Batty Street, in the heart of Stepney in the East End, was no different. A Polish-born couple, Miriam and Isaac Angel, who had been married for just a year, had moved to London eight months previously, and took up residence at Batty Street in May 1887. The couple were very much in love, and Isaac had convinced Miriam to follow him to London in search of a better life together, in order to escape the civil unrest which had been plaguing Poland for the best part of the 19th century. Not long after they set foot in London, Miriam discovered she was pregnant, and by the time they moved into their room in Batty Street, she was six months gone. On the ground floor of the three-storey house lived the landlord, Philip Lipsky, and his wife, and their not one, not two, but seven children sharing one room and a kitchen. Upstairs were two rooms, one of which was occupied by the angels, the other by Philip's mother-in-law, Mrs Rubenstein, and a woman named Mrs Levy, who lodged in the room with her. The third floor had one whole room come workshop, which another renter, Israel Lipsky, not related to Philip, inhabited. 22-year-old Israel Lipsky had lived in Philip's houses for the past three years and moved with the family when they relocated to Batty Street. Lipsky used his lodgings not only for his home, but also as a workshop. He had just set up a business where he made walking sticks a trade he'd learned through his previous employment at another stickmaker, Mr Mark Hartz. In order to start this business, Lipsky had kitted out his room as a workshop and also poached two of Mr McCartz's staff, offering them better wages. Overall, the house was crowded with 14 occupants, and adding a business to the premises was bound to only make things even worse but the angels were happy with their room and the privacy it afforded them. One evening, Isaac had returned home from work at around 9pm, and he and Miriam had some supper. At around 11pm, she went out to post a letter and picked up some ale for Isaac. Isaac drank his ale and the pair fell asleep not long after. The next morning, Tuesday the 28th of June 1887, Isaac left home as he usually did, just after 6am. Before he left, he chatted to Miriam, but left her dozing as he said his morning prayers, and then headed off to work. Little did he realise, that would be the last time he ever saw his wife alive. Just before midday, 
Isaac was visited at work by Mrs Levy, who lived in the room opposite his, and was told he should return back to home, as something had happened to Miriam. Isaac ran the whole way home, but his haste had no consequence, as Miriam had already passed. Rather sensibly, those that had seen what had happened to Miriam didn't allow Isaac to see her body. In order to find out what had occurred at the house, and more importantly to Miriam, the events within the walls of the house had to be pieced together from the hours when Isaac left his sleeping wife, up until her body was discovered. The house had begun to spin into action not long after Isaac left that morning. Perhaps him leaving woke up those that were sleeping. Philip the landlord had awoken and was pottering around in the kitchen at around 6.30, when Israel, from the top floor, appeared in the kitchen, looking for a piece of gas pipe which he told Philip he was looking to use for his stick-making. Philip then left for work at 6.30, leaving his wife and their children sleeping in their room. At around 8am, Israel let in his colleagues Simon Rosenblum and Richard Pittman and sent them up to the workshop where they began working, as Lipsky went out to run a few errands, saying he needed to obtain items such as a varnishing sponge and a new vice for the boys to be able to work properly. At 8.30, Philip's wife Leah woke up, and not long after, Israel entered and instantly asked her for money. She said she didn't have it to give him, and suggested he ask for it from his girlfriend's mother, who was fond of Israel and would often bestow money upon him. Israel said he didn't want to ask for the money from her, as she'd given him 25 shillings the day before, and he just needed five more to help buy a few more things for his business. Leah declined the loan again, and then offered Israel a coffee and said she'd pop out to go and fetch the hot water to make it. Back in the days before electric kettles, people would heat water in huge vats outside in the neighbourhood so the neighbours could get hot water whenever they wanted it for hardly any money at all, instead of having to boil water at home themselves which was inefficient and used too much fuel. Leah returned in hardly any time at all from fetching the water, She made the coffee and shouted upstairs to Israel that it was ready. She shouted twice but was met with a response from the boys in the workshop that he'd gone out again in search of supplies, as his earlier attempt in the day was thwarted, as the shops had yet to open. At around 9am, another man who Rosenblum had met in passing, Mr Schmuss, came to the workshop in Batty Street as he'd been requested to help by Israel the day before and the pair struck up a conversation. Both Rosenblum and Schmuss spoke Yiddish, and Pittman, who was 14 and English, found himself quickly bored at not being able to understand what the men were saying. After Rosenblum snapped at him for bashing a hammer on a table repeatedly with no real purpose, it was politely suggested to the boy in broken English that he should go home to his parents' house to grab some breakfast and return in a short while. Pittman ate his food and then played in the street for a quarter of an hour and returned back to the workshop about 10am. In the interim, Leah, the landlord's wife, had left to go to Petticoat Lane to go and pay the water bill and Mrs Levy accompanied her. Lipsky by this time had returned to the workshop 
but he didn't say anything to anyone in the room. He just stood strangely still whilst the others worked around him. He then turned on his heels and headed back downstairs. Between 10 and 11, Leah's elderly and partially sighted mother, Mrs Rubenstein, was helping her grandchildren get ready for school. On returning home just 20 minutes later, Leah and Mrs Levy were met outside by Miriam's mother-in-law, Dinah, and Mrs Rubenstein, who were chatting outside the house. Dinah had only just arrived at the lodgings, but after some short pleasantries with the ladies, she headed upstairs to see Miriam. She knocked on the door, but there was no response. She tried the handle, but found the room was locked. She then peered through an internal window, which was on the landing outside the room, and could just make out through the muslin curtain that Miriam was laying motionless on the bed, and no amount of knocking was rousing her. Frightened she had fainted, Dinah called down to the ladies for help. Leah sent Mrs Levy upstairs first, but quickly Mrs Levy shouted down that she would need Leah's help. Realising this was now a matter of urgency, all three ladies ran at and shoved the door so as to bust it open, and they succeeded. At around 11am, Pittman, Rosenblum and Schmuss heard a commotion coming from downstairs and went to see what was going on. The ladies were now inside the room, trying to revive Miriam. The women shook her, but there was no response. They tried sitting her up, but that didn't work either. It was then it dawned on the women that she was dead. Mrs Levy ran out into the street and shouted for the doctor who lived a few doors down. He was out making house calls, but luckily was just returning in his carriage along the street. The doctor immediately saw the distressed Mrs Levy and followed her into the house, where he found not only the deceased Miriam, but another patient, Dinah, who had now fainted. Meanwhile, the boys from the workshop watched on as they didn't realise the severity of the situation and just thought Miriam had fainted. In all the commotion, a shop owner from a few doors down went into the house to see if he could help. By this time, the doctor and his assistant had decided this definitely looked like a murder, and so they ordered everyone out of the room and locked the door behind them. About ten minutes later, the men re-entered the room and began searching for a bottle. The doctor had suspicions that Miriam may have been poisoned, and so if they could work out what had been used, they might be able to track down the person that bought the liquid from a sales ledger. The men started moving around furniture, scouring the floor, and finally looking under the bed. Under the bed was a large wooden box which contained dirty laundry and old clothes. There were some other items stuffed under the bed too. After all, in such a small room, storage was at a premium, but a bottle couldn't be found. The doctor asked that the space under the bed be checked again, and the helpful shop owner obliged. He laid on the floor, stretching out his arm to feel his way. His hand touched the box, some clothes... And then, a hand. Shouting out about his discovery, the men pulled out the items from under the bed, and lo and behold, saw a man hiding underneath it. He was unconscious and unresponsive. 
By this time, the police had heard what was going on at Batty Street and an officer was sent to the scene. He arrived just as the man was being dragged out from under the bed. Not long after, the bottle which they were searching for was found on the bed near Miriam, which had the label Aquafortis upon it, a common silver cleaner which could also be used for burning patterns into wood. The mysterious man under the bed was instantly identified as Israel Lipsky, the top-floor lodger and workshop owner, and from the get-go he was under suspicion of Miriam's murder. The coat Lipsky was wearing had been taken off and was hung on the end of the bed, and when the police officer searched it looking for identification, his hands began stinging and burning due to the abrasive liquid that was upon it. Lipsky was clearly ill himself, he couldn't hold himself up, and his arms were burned, his face had marks on it, and he was insensible for the most part. But did Lipsky carry out the murder, or perhaps someone escaped the locked room? Taken to the hospital, Lipsky was in and out of consciousness for quite a while, and when assessed by the doctor, he could see the man had burns on the inside of his mouth and throat, which aligned with the poison Miriam had been given. Once he'd come around, Israel asked for his girlfriend to come to the hospital and told her he'd like to make a statement to the police. In his statement, Lipsky pleaded his innocence. He said that morning he'd gone out to buy a vice, but the shop had been closed. He then met Schmuss on his way back to Batty Street, who asked him if he had any work going to which he said yes. Schmuss followed him to the workshop and Israel sent him upstairs. He then went and asked Leah for coffee. Heading back upstairs, Israel asked both Schmuss and Rosenblum if they could get him brandy. He then headed back downstairs again to use the facilities. When he returned, the two men pounced on him, forced his mouth open and poured poison down his throat making a joke that this was the brandy Lipsky had ordered. They then asked for money, but Lipsky said he didn't have any. They then carried him down the stairs and opened Miriam's room, where Lipsky could see she was already dead, and the men alluded that they'd also murdered her too. He then passed out. Again, he professed his innocence. This was a convincing story and was believed for a while by those closest to Lipsky, but the authorities weren't so sure. After all, how did Rosenblum and Schmuss leave through a locked door? The next day, Miriam's post-mortem was carried out, and this showed her cause of death. She had been punched several times in the head, which had rendered her unconscious, and she was then fed the poison which killed her. As she was unconscious, a lot of the poison went into her windpipe and lungs, causing her to stop breathing. At the initial inquest held the following day, the 30th of June, at Vestry Hall on Cable Street in the East End, it was held by the new coroner on the scene, Wynne Edwin Back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Baxter. Baxter was previously the coroner for Sussex, where one of his earlier inquiries was that of a villain from a previous episode, Percy Lefroy Mapleton. Mapleton threw Isaac Gold out of a moving train after fatally wounding him. And if you haven't caught that episode yet, then I'll leave a link to it in the description, as it's hideous, but fascinating. Anyway, Baxter, who was by this time the coroner for Middlesex, began the inquiry into Miriam's murder, and this would be a career-defining moment for him. But more about that later on. At the initial inquiry, the evidence was all put forward, and this caused doubt upon Lipsky being the murderer. This was not to be an open and shut case. It took just under a month before the case was sent to court, and he spent that month in custody. The now-recovered Israel was trialled at the Central Criminal Court over a weekend, and on his appearance in the dock, he was absolutely adamant that he had nothing to do with the murder, and still maintained it was Rosenblum and Schmuss that had carried out the crime. The judge saw through Lipsky's story, and the final nail in the coffin was that it was his name on the ledger that had bought the Aqua Fortis the nitric acid, which killed Miriam. The men wouldn't have known that Israel had such a substance in his workshop. Furthermore, as both of them were only jobbing workers who did a few things here and there, they wouldn't have known that aquafortis, something which was used by only skilled stickmakers for polishing and etching into wood, would be a viable poison. The man who did know about aquafortis was Lipsky. The other question was if the locked door could have been pulled closed and still remained to be locked. The lock was tested several times over, but no one could work out a way to close the door and keep the door locked from the inside with the key still in the lock on the inside of the door. Whomever was the last person to enter the room would have been the ones to lock themselves in. Given that Miriam's post-mortem gave a time of death about three hours before she was found, It makes sense that Lipsky killed her, left the room, then re-entered, drank the rest of the aquafortis, hiding himself under the bed, trying to make himself look like a victim. After the witness statements were heard and the evidence was put forward by the police, the jury deliberated 
for just seven minutes before coming back with a verdict. Lipsky was guilty of willful murder. Israel was sentenced to death and sent to Newgate Prison, awaiting his execution. Before he was removed from the dock, he still professed his innocence, saying he didn't do it. A day before his execution, Lipsky sought solace in a rabbi, confessing his guilt as he didn't want to die with a lie on his lips. Israel told Rabbi Singer that he believed Miriam had money stashed in her room, and so he waited until Isaac, her husband, had left for the day. When Isaac had left, the door was unlocked, and it remained so whilst Miriam was dozing. Lipsky, on one of his trips out to the shops, must have looked through the window on the landing, which looked into the angel's room, and saw her sleeping. Trying the door, he crept in, searching for money. Mrs Levy had lent Miriam five shillings the day before the murder, to help pay her rent whilst they awaited Isaac's paycheck, and it's quite possible that Lipsky overheard this conversation, and seeing Miriam sleeping, thought she was an easy target. Miriam was disturbed from her slumber by Lipsky beginning to root around for her money. Sitting up in bed, she called out softly, but not loud enough to be heard. To stop her creating any more noise and to mitigate himself from being caught, Lipsky grabbed Miriam and struck her head several times. She continued to struggle, and it was then he upped the ante grabbing her neck and covering her mouth so she couldn't scream. She then became unconscious and he locked the door to avoid being disturbed. He then pulled the bottle of Aquafortis from his pocket, which he claimed he'd purchased with the intention of ending his own life, but instead he uncapped it and poured it into the now unconscious Miriam's mouth. Lipsky left the room, but shortly realised what he'd done, and panicking, he drank the remainder of the bottle's contents himself and came up with the Schmuss and Rosenblum story. He then heard advancing footsteps from downstairs of Dinah, the mother-in-law, and hid under the bed to avoid being caught. He then fainted from the stress of the whole event, or the consumption of the nitric acid, or maybe a combination of the two. After his confession, Lipsky stated that the story about Rosenblum and Schmuss had, as expected, all been an entire fabrication. But even after the confession, people still had their doubts that the right man was going to the gallows. After the guilty verdict was delivered, the Home Secretary was approached by Lipsky supporters, who said the evidence was not enough to convict the man with petitions that attracted thousands of signatures, hoping for a reprieve but it was not granted. Lipsky's supporters believed that he had been coerced into providing the confession and that whoever had killed Miriam was still out there. Even Queen Victoria received a letter from Lipsky's solicitor asking for her pardon, but all pleas were dismissed. It's believed that this was because of institutionalised anti-Semitism and that had this been a British national the pardons would have been granted. On Monday the 21st of August, just under three months since Miriam's murder, Lipsky went to the gallows at around the same time his victim met their maker. At 8am, the bell tolled and Israel Lipsky 
was escorted calmly to the gallows. It was noted that he had accepted his fate and stepped onto the trapdoor without assistance. He was given a long drop by executioner William Batty and buried alongside other executed prisoners at Newgate. After Israel's execution and as a result of anti-Semitism drummed up around his trial, the term Lipsky began being used as a slur to refer to Jewish men. When one man, Israel Schwartz, a resident of the East End, was heading home one night, he happened upon what he thought was a couple having an argument in the street. He saw a man grab a woman and throw her into the gutter, as he was frightened by the behaviour and also didn't want to get involved in what he thought was a domestic dispute, he hurried past. As he did so, he walked past another man on the opposite side of the street, who was wearing a black cloak and a black felt hat. As he walked past, the man lit a clay pipe, and his face was illuminated for a second by the struck match. A few steps past the mysterious man in black, Schwartz heard footsteps behind him, and the man who was still grappling the woman on the other side of the street said in a loud whisper, Lipsky. Schwartz was now scared that this was a rallying call for the man on the opposite side of the street to attack, so he fled the scene. Just 15 minutes later, Elizabeth Stride, the woman who was assaulted by the man, was found dead down the same alleyway she'd just been dragged out of. Her murderer, Jack the Ripper. It's believed that Schwartz was the only man to have seen Jack's face, and perhaps Lipsky was his name. What's more likely is that the man who uttered the name Lipsky was actually just using it as a slur against Schwartz himself, who was Jewish. But in that part of the East End at the time, there was a huge population of Jewish people, and according to Schwartz himself, many men who had the surname Lipsky. So, who knows? When Edwin Baxter, the coroner who called the inquiry on Miriam's murder and who helped to convict Lipsky, was given the task of the inquest for three out of the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, including Elizabeth Stride. Wynne, who had proved his worth on Miriam's case and some subsequent unsolved cases in the East End, was the judiciary for Elizabeth's inquiry. The night Elizabeth was murdered, there was also another murder which happened just under a mile away, that of Catherine Eddowes, which is thought to have been Jack's fourth canonical victim. But as this was outside of the East End jurisdiction, having happened in the City of London, Wynne wasn't tasked with the inquiry. It's no doubt that Wynne's involvement with Lipsky's case got him to the position of being entrusted with the position of coroner for three of Jack's victims, and as a result of his work with these women, he found himself later promoted to coroner for the City of London. So, back to the case in hand. Even though Lipsky confessed before his walk to the gallows, why were people convinced that he didn't commit the crime? Insufficient evidence and only short inquisitions of Rosenblum and Schmuss were largely at play, but from a judge's point of view, what's the point in questioning people further when there was a man found inside a locked room? Even up until the present day, the murder still surfaces from time to time to be discussed as an example as to why the death penalty 
is not the answer, as it wasn't for certain that Lipsky committed the crime, and maybe he was framed by Rosenblum and Schmerz. After all, perhaps Lipsky believed that if he confessed, he may be offered a reprieve, but as it was, this just cemented his date with the noose. We may never know the true identity of Miriam's killer for certain, but to me, it seems highly improbable that the man under the bed in the locked room who bought the acid, subsequently spilled it all over himself and then fainted from stress, did have just a little something to do with it. so much for joining me for that episode as always i'd love to know your theories on this one and if you thought israel was guilty or not so leave your thoughts in the comments on youtube or on my social media if you're listening to the podcast now whilst you're hanging around at the end of the episode without much else to do i'd love it if you gave the video a thumbs up on youtube if you're watching there or to give the show a rating in your podcast provider it's so helpful with the pesky algorithm and also it lets me know that you enjoy what i do and that i'm not just shouting into the void of the internet. Also, please tell your friends about the show. It's so helpful in spreading the word. And also, you can tell them about the Abhorrent Advent Calendar because now's about the time that you should probably start that one again. If you're new around here and you've not yet subscribed and you've made it to this point in the video, then what are you doing? Help yourself out and hit that subscribe button. We'd love to have you join the Ghoul Gang. Also, if you like the show, you've been listening to it for a while now and you've got a few pennies to spare, then why not join me over on Patreon? And you can be like these amazing legendary executive Patreon producers, Amy, Barry, Bethan, Kate, Mary, Ren, Sam, Sarah and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. If you sign up to Patreon, you get an exclusive show from me once a month, and you also get to vote on what episodes I do next, and also depending on the tier, you'll get some tangible goodies through the post too. If you're not up for a long-term commitment and you just want to say thank you for the show, then there's one-off donation links in the description as well. There's also an Amazon wishlist too if you fancy buying something which will help me make more episodes. And thank you so much for your help, even if you just consider those options. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.